Dropping your kids off at college for the first time would no doubt be a very emotional time. Now, Taylor and I are a ways off from that happening with our little kiddos, but the more we talk to friends who have kids that are near college age or old enough for college, we realize how true that really is. Now, imagine that same day, but worrying about whether or not you can afford it kind of puts the pressure on, doesn't it? What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. Super excited you've decided to join in on another show when you could be listening to anything else at this point. It's really an honor to have you guys here with me. I've been doing this for more than a couple of years, actually, and it's still so incredible to me that some of you continue to show up every week, multiple times a week, to hear me talk about finance. Not only are you showing up to the shows, but you're coming around and asking questions in our Facebook community, which is fantastic. If you haven't joined us, please do financialresidency.com slash community. Now this week, I noticed some of you asking about refinancing your mortgage or the terms around buying a new home. While you need lender info for the state you're in, we've vetted and we like a ton of recommended lenders actually on our list, but Jonathan Brozick, who works with US Bank, services all 50 states, and he's an expert in doctor home loans. So working with an expert specialist like Jonathan is going to save you some valuable time, spare you from the headache, and you're going to get started on the right footing from the get-go. So why don't you have Jonathan be your appointment man for your doctor home loan, and you can reach him at financialresidency.com slash US bank. Now let's talk about planning for your kid's college. The cost of college education today can easily equal the price of a medium family home, but the payments are due actually in a much shorter period of time than it would be like paying off your mortgage. The critical role of college education and the skyrocketing costs of planning for college is a little overwhelming. So when you start planning is somewhat still up for debate. That's why I've brought on Brian Eufinger, co-founder of Edison Prep, with me on the show to discuss some of the tips and tricks for planning for college right now and through the course of watching your kids grow into young adults. COVID might have threw a little wrench in this, but I think you're going to get a ton of value from Brian because he's brilliant. So let's jump in and hang out with Brian. Brian, what's up, man? Thank you so much for being on the show. Happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Happy to happy to help. This is going to be amazing because this is stuff that I am not an expert in. I understand the cost of college, how to get people to save for college, the metrics all around that piece. But the idea of getting into college and the prep that goes into this is completely over my head on all the little details because it changes, I feel like, a lot. So I'm really excited to have you. And I think everyone here is going to learn a crap ton from you. So if someone is sitting here, your ideal person that you're wanting to kind of talk to, what kind of grade would you start planning for college? You don't just start as your junior year, right? You, where, where, where are we at in this like planning cycle? How early should we be paying attention to this? Sure. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who are type A planners. So if you have kids who are in diapers, you know, you find an article that seems interesting, just keeping up with general trends when the kids are young is good. As far as hardcore planning, nothing really until about middle school, but the cruel joke of how the college planning process is partially sequenced in many places in America, we get all these panicked phone calls right around Valentine's Day 
of junior year when they all had the big auditorium thing. Our parents are all went to it. We'll all go to it ourselves where all this stuff is laid out. And it's a shame because you can't turn the Titanic on a dime and you definitely can't go backwards. And so, you know, that whole saying the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is today. If your kid is in late middle school, then that's the time you start looking at things because I use this example all the time. I live in Atlanta. Georgia tech is a very high institution of interest to a lot of our clients. And they tell you on the tour at Georgia Tech, 98% of kids who go to Georgia Tech took calculus in high school and 2% of the football team. And so decisions that the middle school parents might make of let's not stress little Caleb out and do this track instead of that math track, you know, not everyone wants to go to Georgia Tech, so it's fine. But there are certain decisions made in middle school, such as the determination of math track that, that's seemingly innocent, you know, they're eighth graders, can have implications down the road. Also, some grades for middle school, depending what high school you go to, if you take Spanish 1, which is supposed to be a high school class in eighth grade, some places count that as part of your high school GPA is going to count for college because when we went to high school, we were told, okay, Queen Slate, as soon as ninth grade starts, now GPA actually starts to matter for the first time in your life. And some kids who didn't take it seriously might have, the, you know, we have one kid who the only B he got in all of high school, a good problem to have, he actually got a C. <laughs> he, he had all A's and then one C in seventh or eighth grade because he was just taking Spanish one and being a goofy middle schooler. So there are rules that change from system to system. All this stuff is, you know, we always tell parents the information you're going on a podcast like this is great. Supplement that with two or three moms who are two or three years older than you or, or dads who you respect as the person who is seemingly on it and knows about, you know, your specific school system. Talk with them, you know, buy them a beer, you know, or coffee or whatever, and ask them, hey, what do you wish you'd know? Like, I, I do that all the time. I used to do informational interviews back in the corporate world, buying a coffee or a beer for someone, in this case, the parents, and saying, what do you wish you'd know four years ago? Because my first one's coming up quickly, and people love to share that stuff. That's the first thing. But yes, by and large, most of the stuff doesn't start until high school with those two middle school exceptions that I just mentioned. Aside from the stuff that you talk about in all of your other episodes, you know, as far as the financial and the savings and the investing and you know, the affordability piece. Yeah. And we've talked enough about that piece. So I don't want to go into it on this show because it's rare that we talk to an expert that is not that even potentially more critical and important to the process. So, I mean, you know, as we grew up, it was like, hey, once you hit freshman year, now it starts to matter. But you're saying that the tracks potentially of math could even be influenced in that seventh to eighth grade. And while most people aren't going to go to Georgia Tech that are listening to this, but they might be thinking like, oh, my alma mater, like USD, right? University of San Diego. Mm -hmm. How do I know necessarily what that track is? Do I call the university? Like, where do I get that next piece of information to go like, hey, these are the tracks that typically kids are going through in order to have just a higher probability of acceptance. It, yeah, it's more common of an engineering school thing than a geographic or other type of thing. But yes, if the schools are more engineering bent and or at the highest level of the U.S. news rankings, then they're more likely to have that expectation of the top track of math. And offline, we had talked about kind of grade inflation and how these are going. I thought that was fascinating. Can you go into a little bit about grade inflation, the way that people are applying for school and how that's changed since you and I were applying for schools and maybe some tips or tricks that parents can implement? Great inflation. I've been on a podcast or two about that specific topic is that it's that rife throughout all of America right now. So I'm not that old. I graduated in year 2000. And you know, in the mid late 90s, like C's happened. C's were definitely a thing in the 90s. 
I have friends who got a multitude of C's and they're doing fine in the real world, et cetera. I just don't think parents, well-meaning parents who many people who are finishing med school were in that era where C's were still hanging around and they might think they still are. They are most definitely not. So I'll give you an example. I'm a numbers guy. I used to work in corporate strategy doing big data stuff before we founded our company. And let's pick on UGA. So University of Georgia, fantastic school that's gotten more popular because there's the Hope Scholarship Program that many people are big fans of. So UGA is not ho-hum. It's not Harvard. It's pretty well regarded, but it's not. I'm not cherry picking a ridiculously hard school. At UGA two or three years ago, the tweet, when the tweet happened, I screenshotted that tweet so hard and saved it in three places on my hard drive because I wanted to save it. And it said, wow, what an impressive crop of students. It said 88% of semester grades, 88% of all semester grades in core classes, you know, PE and band don't count. 88% of all semester grades were A's, 88%. B's were 11% and C's, D's and F's combined were 0.3%. Wow. That was two or three years ago. That same equivalent tweet happened this year's class, and I screenshotted that one too, it went from 88% to 92%. That doesn't sound like a lot, but let's flip the script. No, no, no. If it went from 88% to 92%, did that mean just one third of all Bs in the whole wide world went away in the last two years? And so it's a problem. That is why parents, well-meaning, who think there's checking the report card casually, what suffice as a good GPA in the olden days is no longer that great of a grade. I'll give you an example of how AP history works. So we do these AP history boot camps here in Atlanta. The genesis of that boot camp was because these three sorority sisters from Auburn called me, put me on speakerphone. They were just getting brunch. And they said, why is this happening? Because they, all their kids had a 93%, 107%, 102% in these AP world history classes. And then they all got a one or two, maybe a three out of five on the AP exam, which some schools will count three for credit, some won't, but one and two is failing. It's like, how's that possible? It's just what it is. I said, great inflation, there's no cap on it. It's just whatever, however many A's, you know, Mr. Jacobs wants to give out in his history class, whereas the tests like APs and SATs and ACTs, those are, there's a set curve. And so like only eight or 9% of people get a five, a five out of five on the world history test but 60% of people probably get a B plus or better in any given class, maybe 70 in some schools. And so it's just that part of the curve has been nudged upwards. And so unlike the SAT and ACT, which you can take over and over again, if you need to, if you make some oopses happen freshman year, GPA wise, it can be really hard to recover from just because they count your first six semesters when you're applying early senior year, et cetera. You're bringing back some traumatic pieces for me, thinking of all these AP classes that I took or decided not to take some of them. AP history was really tough for me. Even though I loved it, it just was extremely difficult for me in the way that I process information. Are AP classes like critical at this point to get into colleges? Like that was the thing, like when we were going, it was like, oh, you took all APs. Like you're a shoe in for all these really top colleges because you did really well in your AP classes. Is that the same thing now? Is this morphing into something different or? Yeah, I mean, so I went to a relatively competitive public high school on the outskirts of St. Louis, and I have no clue the exact stats, but a pretty good guess. There were about 400 people in my graduating class. I took seven APs by graduation, and I think maybe 10 people, 10 or 11 total, had that many or more. You couldn't have much more than that. 10 people out of 400 back when I went. Now, if you go on to the UGA admissions blog to use the UGA analogy from before, the average person took eight. We see people with 13, 14 APs, I mean, or more. It's kind of silly, but what's happened is it's, in my opinion, watered down because there used to just be one section. And 
it, in my mind, has transitioned from a anybody who wants a shot, give them a shot, sink or swim, which I find virtue in. Like I can see that. Like if someone says I'm awesome, I want to try, I get that. But when more people are taking AP U.S. history in some schools than regular U.S. history, is no longer AP. It's like the one everyone takes, and then the remedial. And so it's gotten more of a, to me. It's more of a virtue signaling than anything else. It's it's showing, hey, I care. I'm taking the hard stuff. It's not what it used to be necessarily. And that's why you might see some stuff where you have people getting 107% and then getting a two on the exam. And that's one thing that all the people there who are physicians are very familiar with the MCAT scale, which I just found out recently changed. But the, you know, on the MCAT, there's a fixed percentage of people that get to get on the old scale, at least, you know, 42 versus 33 versus 20, whatever on the MCAT. And that's the thing. So on the ACT and SAT, for example, when Reagan was president, when George W. was president today, like it doesn't matter what area you pick, a 30 on the ACT is around a top six and a half, seven percent, whereas the GPA part is not static. The inflation just keeps going ever more. I know there's some people who are super nerdy and who listen to the podcast who might enjoy this. There's a guy named Seth Gershenson, who's a professor who's, he said, I'm being too kind, but he's really, he does really excellent research all about this stuff. So if parents think that I'm, you know, one other data point, there's all this, there's all this data, these studies he put together, that's kind of mind blowing how great inflation has evolved. But if parents know that, then they can reset their expectations. And that way, when little Joey brings home his report card, you know, after halfway through the first semester of freshman year, they can have some context to understand what that really means. Yeah, we'll find him on social or we'll link to some of his work in the show notes on that. That was, I think, helpful to have more data points and more knowledge because just like in finances, the more knowledgeable you are, the more information you have, the higher probability of making a better decision with your finances. And in this case, you'll be able to help your kid through middle school and high school and help them land into a nice college without doing anything illegal like that has hit our news in the most recent past. But, you know, as we're looking at this, you know, you've got great inflation. We've got probably some other little tips and tricks that you've probably come up with on this. There's, I know, a couple things that we'd mentioned offline. What else do you kind of have for parents that are like, okay, this is great. My mind is blown because truthfully mine is that APs have gone through the roof and all that. Like, what else do we have that we can provide some value to the listener? So I think just to give a foundation, if you have a parent who say they know nothing about the college application process, they haven't looked at it since the early 2000s or or late 90s or something. Guilty. The way to look at it is there's three main factors that form the foundation of a college application. There's, did I take hard classes? Did I do well in them? And how are my SAT and ACT scores? Those three are not the only three, but those three form the nucleus and the stuff around it is sort of the garnish on the plate. The activities you're involved in, athletics, the quality of your essays. Are you from an underrepresented state like Wyoming? Are you Sasha or Malia? In which case you might get to get in with a little different standards. So yeah, there's there's all those factors that get too much razzle-dazzle in the media. But the boring part of it is the vast majority of that nucleus that take hard classes, get good grades in them, and then do well in your SATs and ACTs. And then let me go out of my way to say specifically, and get involved in some activities that you truly enjoy. Depth versus breadth, not the kid who does 17 different activities for one year, because that looks kind of transparent and kind of odd. So rather than picking it based on what you think looks good, the colleges, they want to have a diversity of people that have different interests. So they want people to fill the debate club. They want people to fill the swim team. They need an oboe or a clarinet player. There's not a right activity. Your kid's going to hate it if they do an activity they hate for four years or longer. And it really shows in kids' applications when they submit their stuff, if someone's doing it because they loved it or if it wasn't. So plus you want to enjoy it just because 
your kids deserve to enjoy what they're doing. But those big three, take our classes, get good grades, SAT, ACT, form the foundation of it. So physicians listening here are thinking like, well, one, I still have all my student debt and they're trying to figure out how to pay that down and of course save some for their kids. But then when we come to the, hey, there's scholarships, there's grants, there's all sorts of fun stuff. Usually the conversation is, well, like I make too much money. I'm not going to get anything. Why even bother? Right. Is that the case? So there's a couple of ways to attack that. There are some people whose situations that might be the case. And part of why the stuff that we talk about in this episode is important is there is a certain cohort of physicians where the timeline of their payback is kind of a cruel joke where they're living and being all Clark Howard frugal and doing everything right, quote unquote, and just in time for them to finally pay off their med school loans, Jimmy's an eighth grader. And so then they have a four year runway to save for college. Oh, and there's three kids. And so then there's two more coming right after them. And so, yeah, it can be very difficult for people who quote unquote did everything right. There are a couple ways to attack and to defray that. The first one is I find, so probably 10, 15% of our clients in Atlanta are our physicians' kids. And there's a stylish pessimism among a number of them where they're like, I'm not even going to bother filling out those financial aid forms just to be told what I already don't know anyways. So first of all, this is stupid in my mind, but it's the rule at many colleges. In order to be considered for merit scholarships, you have to fill out the financial aid form. And it's like, well, isn't there a Chinese wall in between the financial aid department. So don't ask me, I don't set the rules, but the part of the reason why you need to fill that out is there are a number, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of schools that require you to fill out your financial aid form in order to be considered for merit aid. That's the first reason that all physicians should fill it out because they might have kids with great stats that could compete reasonably for merit aid at schools. The second reason is it depends on the sequencing of your kids because uh, there's physician that made a lot of money. Uh, we, it's a family friend. And so this physician has lots of kids, multiple, had, had multiples, and then also had kids beyond that. And so what happens that is this particular physician was going to have all the sons in college at the same time, overlapping at least for at least a part of it. And he was all like, ah, oh, there's no, there's no way my sons are, you know, this, you, you, you can ask me what I make because I used to work in hospital administration. And I'm like, no, fill it out because you have all those kids in college at the same time. You're not going to get a gajillion dollars, but you'll get something, especially those two years where they overlap. And he filled it out and he cusses like a sailor. So I won't say what he said. He was shocked and blown away. He's like, I know where I rank. He's like, my income, this shouldn't be possible. I'm like, no, no, no. Have you added the sticker price of one kid at this school, one kid at this school? And so it made total sense uh, that, you know, and it, it wasn't going to light his financial world on fire, but it, you know, probably could pay a couple mortgage payments here and there. And it, it was something because they have these very specific calculators that you may have talked about on other episodes, like the EFC, the family contribution, based on your earnings and the school's cost, there's a formula that they use called the EFC, expected family contribution. And so you'd be surprised people with higher incomes when they have multiple kids. If you have a doctor family where there's two physicians that are married and they had just one kid, only child, they still need to fill it out in order to be considered for merit aid probably, but they're probably not going to get much aid. Now, there, there are other things that if there is someone who wants to start researching or might even know what kinds of colleges their kid might be considering, there are many schools that I applaud to their credit. They list these merit aid grids, like Michigan State does it. There's a bunch of schools that do. There's probably over 100 that have cleanly published discount grids saying on the x-axis, they have the GPA, and on the y-axis, they have the SAT, ACT. Part of it is to prevent phone calls probably because they would get a million phone calls with questions. But it just says, if you have this and this, here's the money you get. Thanks. The end. 
And so parents can see, and that's not based on your family income. That's just based on, you know, Auburn, I'll use theirs. I know theirs by heart. They have their three levels. So there's the three levels. You have to have a 3.5 GPA. It's actually a flat for all, all three levels of 3.5. And then starting at a, a 28 ACT, next level 31, and then or next level 30, and then next level 32, they shift it year to year. So check the website whenever you're listening to this episode. But there's three different tiers in ranging from like four grand a year to, oh, I think, almost 16 grand a year. And that's just, that's you know, over four years, that's, you know, that's a lot of money. So uh, those things, if you know about them, wouldn't it be a shame if your kid was then one point away and then it was too late to take the test or had a 3.49, but would have otherwise qualified? I will say for all the negative stuff in the news, um, yes, there was the scandal and that guy was a sort of a one-off, et cetera. A lot of the college administrators, they have a pretty unwinnable task because kids are applying to more schools than ever. They're not sure, are we your first choice or last choice? And, you know, budget constraints where the state governments aren't giving them as much funding as before. So we are in a field where the college administrators do a very difficult task with a smile and, and try to do the best they can, even though the inflation and cost is not admirable. I like that they publish those grids. They certainly did not have those kind of scholarship grids published when people like you and I were in college. Yeah, I don't remember any of those things. And that's nice to know that that is out there. So if you are thinking like, hey, I want my kid to go to my alma mater or these, you know, certain subset of schools, go do some research, find out if they have those things. Hey, maybe we got to retake the test here or obviously, you know, it comes back to take our classes, get good grades, get good scores on those things. I have a selfish question for this. If we've seen in the media here about loans potentially being forgiven, and we know that colleges have been increasing the cost of college ridiculous since we were in school. I can't believe like even my, my alma mater USD is like doubled in tuition since I went there and I don't want to feel old, but it hasn't been that long since I was in college. If some type of forgiveness were to happen, do you think that we would see the cost of colleges just rapidly increase even higher than that? Like wouldn't teach the colleges any lesson other than keep raising rates. Like what do you see just kind of gut feel on if loans were actually being forgiven, like some of the candidates have talked about, how would that impact getting into college or the cost of college? The fact that college costs are going up and the fact that healthcare costs are going up. And if you look at industries where costs are going up, it's ones that have high labor costs. You know, you can get a ridiculously amazing TV for one tenth of what you get it for, you know, 10 years ago. And that's because the machine makes it the end. Part of it is, is hard, just like in healthcare, because it's so human capital intensive. And it's also equipment intensive and the fixed cost of running a university, the buildings, the heating, the cooling, the buildings and all the employees and all the everything, just like you know, an MRI machine for the hospital. It's very high fixed cost. So I don't know that it's even mathematically possible for the inflation rate of higher education to ever match the overall one, just because stuff like TVs and whatnot is always going to bring way down. Obviously, they should do everything they can to do that. There's going to be a shakeout, in my opinion. It's already been happening. You can, there's some person who maintains a college death list of schools that have closed. There's about 3,000 colleges and the baby boomers are right, are certain generation and the peak of the baby boomers kids, the baby boomlet is what they call it, has just finished. So last year's class is the biggest class that will exist for some time now. And so what that means is colleges are going to be fiercely fighting for people more than ever before. Could that mean discounts? It could. It's also going to mean that, that there's going to lead to a clearing away of some of the schools that are more financially on the ropes, some mergers, some consolidations. They've already done that. There's one school that closed up in the Northeast that might turn into a high school boarding school. It used to be a small school in the Northeast. And so there's going to be 3,000 colleges that go down to 
you know, maybe, I don't know, 2,500, maybe in 20 years from now, which is probably maybe appropriate given you know, there's just not, there's so high, such high fixed costs that there's no way to reduce costs. Whereas a school like UCSD, they add one extra dorm, like doesn't increase the overall cost that much. So I think you're going to see some of the large schools getting larger and some of the tough schools that are already struggling that are tiny get smaller. Now, will they pass those tuition costs on? Who knows? As far as loan forgiveness, I have no crystal ball. The one thing I've always said to people is just like if there's a credit card charge off, and there's depending on the stuff, if someone's debt gets charged off, that you still might get the tax bill for the loans forgiven. So if, if it gets wiped out, there's still people who I don't, I don't think are realizing, oh, there's probably going to be as part of that, you still owe income taxes on the amount that wiped off. So it'd still be a big bill that came due. There are other ways to combat that inflation. So my wife and I both had creepily similar life stories where we both, she, was, she grew up in Tennessee, I grew up in, in Missouri, and we both paid for all of college via having good grades, taking hard classes and having really high test scores. And so we're grateful. We paid for what was back then about $400,000 worth of Washington University in St. Louis where we met. I'd love to lie to people and tell people that I studied for 500 hours for the SAT and ACT and all the other stuff. I was like most high schoolers in the late 90s where to study for the SAT and ACT, I quit JV tennis. The coach didn't care because I wasn't that good. And I spent half the time studying for SAT, ACT and AP exams. And the other half the time I spent playing GoldenEye in my friend Danny's basement. That's it. If kids could treat this as a miniature sport for one season, the number of dollars I earned per hour, it was like 100 hours maybe that I studied for the SAT and ACT and it paid for 200 grand of WashU. You know, my dad climbed telephone poles for a living. There was no bucket of money coming around and financial aid programs have gotten way better at schools just for people who are not making much money. The most of the listeners of the podcast are making too high of income to qualify, but every year they'll say, oh, Rice just announced anybody making under 125 gets half tuition at least or maybe more. All those different programs are emerging. So one thing that everybody can take advantage of is and this is not right for everybody, so I should. this is not a universal recommendation, but at least considering it, is resident advisor. Most schools, some schools it's available sophomore through senior year, some schools only junior and senior year. Because while I put together a patchwork quilt of scholarships to pay for WashU, most of it came from WashU. Then I had an Eagle Scout scholarship, some other scholarships just that paid for it. But every year, if the cost of tuition is going up two grand or three grand, you got to find something to plug those holes. And for me, resident advisor is that. Now, resident advisor, you're the dorm dad or the floor mom where it's not for everybody, but it pays for room and board, sometimes parking pass and other little small fees and things. So doing it for five semesters for me paid for another 30, 40,000 of stuff. And so that is not based on test scores or good grades. That is based on having been a good citizen <laughs> that residents or life office knows about and thinks well of, and you have to apply interview. It's a very competitive process. If there's a person who's interested in it, it's a great way to pay for a lot of things more so than trying to win a $500 rotary scholarship in your local town. Yeah. These are such great tips. I really appreciate all of those. And the last little piece I'll add to this is the forgiveness that candidates are, are basically doing. They probably will be taxable, maybe not, but they have income thresholds. And trust me, physicians are not in the income thresholds of probably getting their loans forgiven. I know lots of people have been holding off on what they're going to do. Should be in PSLF? Should they refinance? Oh, let's see what the candidates are going to offer and do. All this is going to be income threshold and you're going to make way too much money to get anything forgiven. So don't hold your breath on that piece. But Brian, thank you so much for being here. How can everyone find out all the awesome stuff you're doing? Tell us where you're at, what you're up to. Sure. Yeah. So my wife and I, we started and run a company called Edison Prep. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And 99% of what we do is SAT and ACT preparation. We also do AP history boot camps uh, once a year. So our Facebook is just facebook.com slash Edison Prep and our website is just edisonprep.com. I mean, I'm, most of you listening to this podcast are probably not in Atlanta. Although weirdly, uh, ever since I was on a different podcast uh, earlier last year, we had a bunch of people who did, and this is hilarious, financial arbitrage because they lived in a place like Manhattan where even a bad tutor costs a gajillion dollars an hour. And we had people from 13 states that came down to our class our summer classes this past summer. So that was unexpected. It was kind of funny, but yeah. So for the most part, this information today is not about me getting business. It's just this information needs to get out there because a little bit of early information, like that early knowledge is really power. Not have to learn on the second kid, less so many families do. You can learn on the first kid and have your whole plan mapped out and, and do things really well. Yeah, I love it. Such a great similar parallel piece to to finance, right? Don't stick your head in the sand, figure it out later. All of a sudden later comes and you're like, whoops, I should have been doing all these other things in order to have this in place to have the ideal life, to live how I want, where I want, retire when I want, be financially independent. So I totally agree. Love, love, love the information. And I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to have to start trying to figure out all this stuff pretty soon because if it went from ninth grade now to seventh grade, who knows what they're going to end up pulling by the time that my kids end up going to college. But thank you so much for being here. It was awesome to have you on and get schooled in all the pieces of going to college. So how does it work these days? I know that I, I applied to very few schools when I was going through this. I knew exactly where we wanted to go. I had the grades, the test scores and stuff to, to kind of get in. But how are people with the application process? How has that changed now? So it's actually gotten dramatically different. Obviously with computers, everything becoming computerized. I actually went to Kinko's and filled out with an electronic typewriter, all the applications. So you had to really want to go to school to actually go to it back, you know, and this was in 1999. And so now the biggest curse and blessing for, in a lot of cases is the common application, which is a system where now you can apply to a bunch of schools, just click, 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 click. There's a couple supplemental essays, but it is now fundamentally almost too easy to apply to too many schools. And so it's really created a bit of schizophrenia in the process where the college doesn't know if you're their first choice or their last choice. And it's created a lot more usage of wait lists and a lot of usage of early decision where they lock you in binding when you apply. And so what I would tell physicians is two things. Unfortunately, at the micro level, the incentive is there to make the vicious cycle worse in applying to schools because we've seen people get wildly different financial aid offers with the same set of stats at schools that are considered to be quote unquote peer institutions. So in the big picture cost of college, the worst, you know, 60 or 70 bucks, if it's a, if it's a school, the kid truly would like to go to, would enjoy attending the worst 60 or 70 bucks to spend in the big process is that one application that you were on the fence about, because I mean, I'm a great example. And I'm not someone who had parents had crazy income with my exact same stats, you know, Georgetown, give me zilch, zero, nada despite my family having pretty low income and you know, Emory gave me like half and Wash, you said, Hey, how about everything? I'm like, okay. Like, and so those are supposed to be schools that are relatively in the same bucket of, you know, the tier and the U S news rankings and things. So I would say to the families who are on the fence, tell them apply to one or two more schools than you think you have. And don't just look at it as safeties and reaches for admission, but also safeties and reaches for affordability. 
Because if you have, if you think of it as four quadrants with the X, Y axis be X axis being how hard it is to get in. And then the Y axis, how generous or not generous are they? What, what, you know, what does it cost? You, you don't want to have all of your schools in one quadrant. You want to make sure your list is balanced on the two dimensional perspective. When we see some physician panic from time to time, it's a kid who got into one school is ho-hum and very affordable and got into three schools that were very hard to get into. And then that had a giant price tag and parents were trying to thread that needle. As always, it's time for our quick community update. And I love doing shows where we get to hear fascinating guests. And I love even more talking about our community. And I'm just seeing so much activity in our community. It's amazing. It's so fun to see all of you guys trying to figure out your finances, asking phenomenal questions. And I saw a lot about you know, needing a responsive lender to talk about refinancing and buying a home. And like I said earlier in the show, we recommend Jonathan Brozick at U.S. Bank is one of our recommended lenders. And you can find him at financialresidency.com slash U.S. Bank. But if you'd like to also check out someone else, there's plenty of guys that we have vetted on our list. So go to financialresidency.com slash home loan and click on the state that you're in and you will find everyone that we recommend in the state that will be able to help you get a physician mortgage loan. There's also plenty of other resources that you can go to and check out on our website, financialresidency.com slash resources. But if you are looking to refinance your home, rates are at historic lows right now. You really owe it to yourself to go to financialresidency.com slash home loan, click on your state and actually see what it would be like to refinance your home. Bet you're going to save a bunch of money. I know I did. I was excited to do that. Now, before we end, it's time for that important disclaimer. I want you to be so adept with your finances that your friends don't even recognize you. But the only way to do that is by being smart with the information you learn from the show. This podcast should be looked at as an education tool. And honestly, that's it. I only give advice to clients who work with us. And I'm guessing you're not one of them. I'd love for you to be. So in that case, come on over, hang out with us at physicianwealthservices.com. We work with physicians all across the country and would love to chat with you. But honestly, I don't think you should take anyone's advice that doesn't actually know you. So again, if you're looking for an advisor, go to physicianwealthservices.com. We can definitely talk about it. But until then, talk to your legal, your tax, or your financial advisor to get the specific information and advice you need right now. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll see you on Friday. Cheers.